This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Susanna, Emmeline, Benton, and Noah. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll start with our serious questions, and in this episode, our two serious questions and our big question all center around a central theme, as you'll see. Our first question comes from Caleb F. He asks, should you keep trying to love someone who won't listen to you and beats you up? Well, this is such a good question, Caleb, and I hope that you're asking out of curiosity and not because, for example, your sister keeps beating you up. If that's the case, then let me say to her right now, stop beating your brother up. The answer to the question, though, is yes, you should still strive to love someone, even if they won't listen, and even if they hurt you. But that doesn't mean letting them beat you up. Remember, in his advice on Jesus' teaching, Richard Baxter, who I mentioned in the sermon, says that you can love someone and still be careful for your own preservation, and that loving someone doesn't mean putting a sword into his hand. Think about it. Loving people doesn't mean condoning or enabling sin. In fact, the Bible teaches that it is appropriate to defend ourselves and others from harm, provided that we do it in the right way, uh, using force only when necessary and in proportion to the offense. But none of this gets us off the hook when it comes to love. Jesus shows us perfect love. He loves even the people who are crucifying him. And that tells us that even in the toughest cases, we should strive to love. And now Susanna asks, How do you love your neighbor and your enemy if they don't love each other? Susanna, this is where it's good to remember something that Jesus said in the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew 5. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, whenever our neighbors are in conflict with each other, one of the ways that we can show them love is to help make peace between them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul actually teaches that the whole gospel is actually what he calls a ministry of reconciliation. He says that through Christ, God reconciled his enemies to himself, and the enemies he's talking about are us. So the whole work of Jesus can be seen as the greatest act of peacemaking in all human history. Now, with that in mind, when people around you are in conflict, instead of taking sides and making things worse, you can love them by trying to bring about reconciliation. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this time from Emmeline. So let's give Emmeline a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. Does turn the other cheek apply when someone else is being hurt? Well, as my previous answer suggests, the short answer to this question, Emmeline, is yes. What Jesus is teaching applies in every circumstance. 
The question, though, is how it applies. What does it mean to turn the other cheek, especially when it comes to turning the other cheek when someone else is being hurt? So first, let's clarify what Jesus means when he talks about turning the other cheek. He says that if someone slaps you on the right cheek, you should turn the left to them as well. Now that's more than just saying don't slap them back. It's saying that not only should you not return slap for slap, but you should be willing to endure another slap. Now, a slap on the cheek is not a physical assault. It's an insult. Jesus is talking about how we should respond to being insulted, whether physically or in some other way, verbally, for example. Is it wrong to insult someone? Yeah, it's wrong. It's sinful to insult someone. The point here is that when you are sinned against, you don't respond by committing a sin yourself. In other words, you don't answer evil with evil. So Jesus isn't saying, if someone tries to beat you to death, you just have to let them kill you. At least, he's not commanding that. Jesus, in perfect righteousness, does exactly that when you think about it. And he also makes accommodation for the fact that we cannot be perfectly righteous and that we live in a corrupt world. So on the one hand, we have Jesus embodying perfect righteousness, and on the other, we have accommodations that are made because we do not possess that perfect righteousness, and we live in a fallen world. For example, if you look in Luke's gospel towards the end, right before Jesus' arrest, He reminds the disciples of the way that he had sent them out before. And earlier he'd sent them, he says, without money bag or knapsack or sandals. And the point of sending them out that way was so that they could learn to trust in God's provision for all of those things. Despite that, before his crucifixion, Jesus tells them, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. What's he getting at? Well, he's telling them that once he's gone, things are going to be different. Once he's gone, they're going to have to deal with life in a fallen world. Now, it just so happens that when the apostles uh, take an inventory, they already have two swords, And so, at least to some extent, Jesus is acknowledging the need for self-protection. Even so, when Peter, a few moments later, uses one of those swords to chop off the ear of one of the men who's coming to arrest Jesus, Jesus rebukes him. This points, I think, to the complexity of living righteously in a sinful world. Peter cannot use force to stop the unjust arrest of Jesus. Yet there is a concession, a provision for its use in other situations. So needless to say, this has led to a lot of theological speculation. It's a subject that you can do a lot of study on and a lot of reflecting on. But for our purposes, let's take a different approach. Turning the other cheek is just an example of a larger teaching that Jesus is giving, which is to love your enemies. If you want to understand better what that means you have to reflect on what love is and how love acts. Does a loving parent indulge a child in every whim, whether the child is doing good or doing evil? Of course not. If the parent really loves the child, then that parent will correct the wayward kid. Correction is an important part of real love. What that means is this. 
If you see someone insulting another person, treating them sinfully, then a loving response would be to rebuke the sinner, to say, hey, what you're doing isn't right, and and you should repent. In essence, you're accomplishing two things. In love, you're trying to protect the wronged person from harm, and in love, you are calling the wrongdoer to repent. And I think the call to repentance is especially loving in this case because you're giving that person the benefit of the doubt. You're assuming that their heart is soft enough that they would turn from sin when confronted. Now, loving parents do this all the time, and it's a good example to us. Turning the other cheek doesn't mean standing by passively and doing nothing. The reason so many people do stand by passively is out of fear. They don't want to confront the wrongdoer because they might be insulted themselves for it. They're willing to love the one who is insulted, but only to the extent that they don't expose themselves to insult. But Jesus says, not only don't answer evil with evil, but answer it with good, even if that means you put yourselves at risk of receiving evil back. So stand up for what's right. Just don't use one person's offense as an excuse to commit an offense of your own. There's a great example of this kind of love, by the way, in Jane Austen's novel, Emma. If you're familiar with the book or one of the movie adaptations, you'll remember the scene where Mr. Knightley has to confront Emma because she's been mocking a vulnerable person in their circle to amuse the others. Now, Mr. Knightley loves Emma, But he doesn't go along with her insults, which would be the easy thing to do. He takes her aside and he corrects her, risking their relationship. But that's what it takes for her to realize her error and to repent of it. I've always thought this moment in the novel is a good example for all of us who struggle to do the right thing when it's easier to do nothing. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Benson, who asks, Have you ever wanted to redo your answer to a question on the big question? You thought you could have answered it better, perhaps. Well, Benson, although I like to pretend that there are no questions that I can't answer, uh, in all honesty, I need to be the first to admit that there are questions that either I can't answer or that I don't answer perfectly. And I want to be the first to admit that none of my answers are, are perfect, although I do make an effort to get them right. So yes, there have been plenty of questions that I could have answered better. But even so, no, I've, I've never wanted to go back and redo an answer. One of the nice things about the big question is that the important themes come up again and again. So if you keep listening, the answers probably get better and better too. At least I hope so. And now Noah asks, who in our church has done the most Youth Chronicles and how many? One of the things I say every week, Noah, is that we have to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. Some of those mysteries are bigger than others, and this is perhaps one of the smaller ones, yet it is still a mystery. The fact is, we do not have a vast archive at the church where all the records can be consulted, so, in fact, we do not know who has done the most Youth Chronicles from the very beginning, or exactly how many Youth Chronicles have been done, either by one person or collectively. I can only guess, and if I had to guess, I'd say that at least a million Youth Chronicles have been turned in so far. Uh, Maybe a little less, I'm just guesstimating here, but about a million sounds right. 
I like to think, though, that the real measure for the Youth Chronicle isn't the quantity, it's the quality. It's a lot like sermons in that way. Nobody cares how long a sermon is, as long as it's good. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Really? Really? That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions. 